Thank you, Ben, for most of that. It is great to see you tonight. We are thrilled to be here. Um, this is one of the invitations that, that I'm always happy to get. I'm always happy to get all of them, but to be invited to be back here uh, is like coming home. And so uh, our family is always excited to be with you. Uh, they wouldn't have let me leave them home. They would have been hanging on the bumper probably. So uh, we are glad to be here. And I'm glad to be presenting this lesson. I encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you tonight, to turn to the book of Haggai. It sounds like a look that you might get from a mean lady. Like she gave me the Haggai, you know, something like that. Um, not a good thing. It it's kind of sounds bad. But, but one of the things that I have, have discovered is that when you get an assignment, you, you have to learn something that maybe you have never learned before. I love to get assignments. I love it when people say, we want you to speak on X topic. And when I was given Haggai, it tested that love, okay? Because I had never preached on Haggai. I had read it a number of times, but I don't know that I've ever studied it in depth. And so I invite you into this study with me tonight. I've never actually eaten it, but I've heard that every recipe for rabbit stew, no matter how you choose to make it, should begin with the same four words. Catch the rabbit first. What happens when you try to make rabbit stew without rabbit is that you don't end up with rabbit stew. You might have a delicious meal, and you might make a, a, the kind of stew that everybody wants to eat, but it won't be rabbit stew. So what happens, if we could begin with a couple of questions tonight, what happens when God's people try to be God's people without including God? Is that going to work? God will give you the Haggai if you try that, won't He? You can't be God's people without God. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's maybe get a little bit more relevant. What does God expect from His people during difficult times? When times are legitimately difficult, we're not just talking about that they could be difficult. They really are difficult and challenging. Does God give us permission to shift our priorities a little bit? To accommodate for those difficult and challenging circumstances? I did not know what I would find when I opened up the book of Haggai. God has surprised me tremendously and blessed me immensely with this study. It's turned out to be one of the most timely and helpful studies that I've done in a long time, and I pray it'll benefit you as well. Tonight's study is called First Things First. This is not an exhaustive study of the book of Haggai and everything that's included in it. Rather, it's an attempt to capture what I believe was Haggai's main purpose of this book and the main purpose of his prophetic work and to make, as we should, some relevant application. So we're going to begin with what I will just call the situation, and that is Haggai's message. What does Haggai say? And as you've probably experienced with all of these lessons on the minor prophets, it can be helpful to do just a little bit of background. Not a lot. We won't bore you with every little detail, but just a few things that will give more meaning to Haggai's 
writings. We don't know much about Haggai. He's really only mentioned here and, and in the book of Ezra, and, and we really don't know much about him personally. His name means something like feast or festival, but we don't know much else about him. When we look into the book of Ezra, chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 14, he prophesied alongside Zechariah, who you'll be learning about in a couple of weeks. He was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah during the period of time when the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity, from the exile. So that's who wrote the book of Haggai, and that's whose prophecy we're talking about tonight. Now, when it comes to the, to the time and the date that Haggai prophesied, the, the book is pretty remarkable in that sense, in that it gives you some very specific dates, down to the month and the day of the month, in some cases, through the book of Haggai. So this is, this is really interesting and helpful. It begins by telling us in chapter 1, verse 1, if you'd like to look at that with me, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, you see how specific we're getting? The word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So that's when we're talking about. And this is likely, according to historians, this is around the year 520 B.C. The end of Haggai's prophecy, as we see in chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 20 happened around the 24th day of the ninth month. So if we do a little bit of math, and I can't do much, but if we do a little bit, the entirety of Haggai's prophetic work, at least what we have recorded here, took place over a period of about three to four months. He didn't prophesy, at least that not that we know of, for an extended, long period of time. That's why his book is so relatively short. What is the point of the book of Haggai. What is going on among God's people that prompts his prophetic work? Well, the Jews, as you know, <clears throat> excuse me, have been taken into Babylonian captivity in stages by King Nebuchadnezzar, beginning around 600 BC, depending on who you ask. The entire city of Jerusalem, along with pretty much everything in it, was destroyed around 586 BC, and you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. Now, around 539 B.C., about 42,000-plus Jews returned to Jerusalem, Ezra chapter 2, verse 64. And they immediately began to rebuild God's temple. It wasn't long after they began this building project, though, that they faced some serious opposition, and the work stopped. It, they built the foundation, and, and they faced opposition, and and they had some enemies that came up against them, and they just quit. And that's Ezra chapters 3 and 4, if you want to read about that. So about 16 to 18 years after they stopped building the temple, Haggai and Zechariah began prophesying to God's people, urging them to finish building the temple. That was basically the, the singular message of Haggai, as we see it in this book. And that building, that temple, was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. That's Ezra 6.15. So some four years after Haggai said, hey, y'all need to get back to work. Some four years later, it was finished. 
Can you imagine being a prophet and actually seeing what you have prophesied come about? That didn't happen very often, did it? Most of the times the prophets would, would preach and preach and preach and never see any results, much less any positive results. And Haggai was able to look four years later, perhaps, and say, look, that, that worked. It's kind of a positive thing when you talk about prophets, because that, again, was pretty rare. So that's the setting and the, the purpose and the overview of the book of Haggai and why it was written and when it was written. So let's talk about the message. I think we see two basic messages that I want to talk about tonight. And the first one is found in chapter 1, beginning in verses 2 through 11. And Haggai sort of points out at this uh, initial start of his prophetic work that the people are neglecting the temple. So as, as you look at chapter 1, begin in verse 2, read with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Let's stop there for a minute. An entire generation, 16, 18-year-olds, have, have grown up never seeing anybody work on the temple. They walk by and they say, Daddy, what's that? Well, that's the foundation for the temple. Well, are we going to build the rest of it? Well, we don't talk about that, son. You know, an entire generation of people have grown up seeing the beginnings of the temple and seeing their parents and grandparents doing nothing to continue that work. An unfinished house of God. And the older Jews, 18 and above, they've gotten used to this. They've gotten used to walking by this area of Jerusalem and seeing this unfinished foundation and saying, well, someday maybe. Let's get back to work. Let's go do the things that we've got to do. So everyone has gotten used to this. And what do they say to themselves as they justify leaving the temple unfinished? What do they say? They say, it's just not time yet. It's just not time yet. What does this mean? What are they really saying? Because I think you and I will be able to understand the mentality if we put ourselves in their shoes. I didn't say we would agree with it, but we might be able to understand it. We might paraphrase it like this. Surely God does not expect us to focus on that under the current circumstances. Surely God understands that we're, we're not required to complete that kind of task when we're still reeling from opposition and captivity and depleted resources and low morale and a struggling economy, we're just not the people we used to be. We can barely feed our families, clothe our children, and earn a living for ourselves. The temple's just going to have to wait. And you can almost hear them say, God will understand. I don't know if that's the exact words that, that they might have said, but they did say it's just not time. Time's not right yet for us to continue building God's house. Now, none of those circumstances would have been untrue. The Jews were in a tough spot. They were a shadow of their former selves, and I'm sure that this was a rough transition for them to make. But what's the truth of the situation? Because God has a way of doing that, doesn't He? God comes along and says, let me just tell you what the truth is. I've heard what you're saying. I've heard all of your excuses. Let me just cut to the chase here. And that's what He does through the word of Haggai. It's about to cut through their excuses and reveal the real reason 
why the rebuilding of the temple has stalled for about 20 years. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time, and you could hear the sarcasm almost, is it, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Is it time for that? You say it's just not time to build the temple. What is it time to do? It seems like it's always time for you to, to build your own stuff. I, I, I look around and I notice that, that you've got a place to dwell. And, and not only do you have a place to dwell, but, but this phrase, paneled houses, is very interesting. It's very interesting in that original Hebrew. It's a little bit difficult to determine the precise meaning, but the intention is clear. These houses that they lived in, in terms of their overall condition, were finished. In terms of the attention that they had received from these people, they had received a high level of their attention. This word can even mean well-roofed. Isn't that basically the last thing to go on a house, is the roof? If a house is well-roofed, you're done, right? The people, you can hear them, we don't have time to build this temple, let's get home and finish putting the roof on our own house. Right? That's what God is saying. Listen, is, is it okay for you to have a place to live in and, and, and me look at this foundation all day, every day? My house is a neglected and unfinished embarrassment. And if you keep reading in verses 5 through 11, you see the real cause for their economic hardships. Let's read that. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And, and if you stop there and think, as, as they're listening to this from Haggai, they're probably thinking, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> That's what life is like. And, and all the while they're hearing this, they're probably thinking, yeah, Lord, that's the life that we're living. Thanks for reminding us about it. We're doing our best. And, and what God is about to reveal to them is this is all connected. Listen to what God says next. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. This is the plot twist. You want to know why you're having such a hard time with your crops? You want to know why you can't seem to get your savings account above a certain level? I did it. I did that to you. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. You think that might have been a difficult message to hear? That's hard. It would have been hard to hear at any point, but especially when times are hard. It's hard to hear that you're not doing the right thing, and I'm not going to bless you until you do. 
Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So in case there was any confusion, I'm the one that's behind your problems. And here's the exact reason why. Now get back to work on my house. So even though God's people had found a convenient way to compartmentalize their lives into separate areas, that we're going to ignore this compartment over here for now, and we're going to focus on this compartment. And God's saying, no, there's no compartments. That's what you don't understand. You're my people. There's no compartment. It's, it's all mine. It's all got to involve me. If it doesn't all involve me, it's all going to be affected. And the people had just really forgotten that. If not in their mind, they'd forgotten it practically in the way that they were living. And the Bible says in Haggai chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, same month, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So about three weeks after Haggai and Zechariah started preaching this message, everyone is on board. And you wouldn't have much choice, honestly. You want to eat? You want to clothe your families? You, you want to have your basic necessities met? Build my temple. Get back to work. If we skip ahead into chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, which takes place a few months into the building process, we see that there was a point in that building process where God began to revisit His blessings on His people. There was a point in the building process where God says, from this day forward, you're going to have what you need. And so while they were building, God begins to bless them again. But the problem was, and this is something that was completely lost on them, the problem was they were neglecting the temple. Remember that, because we're going to come back to it. They just let it go. They just stopped being concerned about it, and they did their own thing for about 16 or 18 years. Now, let's go to the second message that... Put that a little, a little late. God is basically saying I did that. Probably look at my slides a little more before we get here. Message number two. You are disrespecting the temple. Okay, let's read. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, this is about a month after the building has resumed, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? I want to stop there. What's happening here? About a month into the rebuilding process, we have a group of, no disrespect to anyone here, but we have a group of old people. A group of old people, 70 to 80 years old to be exact, if you do the math, and how long they've been back, and how long it's been since they had that original temple that Solomon built. We've got a group of those people who had seen the first temple. They saw it before it was destroyed. 
And now they're seeing this second one, and they're being very, very negative about the temple. They're looking. They're, they're walking by. You can almost see them and hear them as they walk by every day. And their younger brothers and sisters are working hard to rebuild this temple that God just told them to rebuild. And it's just not the same. Would you look at that? That is just, that's not the temple. That's not the temple I remember. They're doing it wrong. This is, a, this is an embarrassment. This, if, you can, if you can't do any better than that, this is just sad. Now, let's be fair to these people. If we read about the building of Solomon's original temple, you ever read about that lately? 1 Kings chapter 6, built at the height of Israel's military, economic, and spiritual power. The height of it. They had more gold than they knew what to do with. If, so, if something came in uh, during the construction of the temple, where do you want me to put this? Put it over there. Wait, cover it in gold first. Everything is covered in gold. Cover it in gold, cover it in gold. Hey, cover it all in gold. Solomon just wrote a blank check. Because he took in billions of our dollars worth of gold every year. So there's gold, there's, there's craftsmanship everywhere that the eye sees. This is a beautiful temple that these people remember. And I'm sure that when they look at this new one being built, it, that it did seem like nothing. The ark wasn't even there anymore. Probably nothing is covered in gold. Probably covered in rust. There's no visible abiding sign of the presence of God as there had been in days past. This is just not the same. This is what this reminds me of. We've been watching a show called Nailed It. Has anybody ever seen this show? They bake cakes on this show. And this, we laugh so hard that we cry. Because here's what they do. They get these amateur bakers in, and they show them this thing that some professional baker has baked. And it's beautiful. And they give them about 45 minutes to duplicate it. And this is what happens, okay? Let me find my pictures here. Okay, this is the cake that they're asked to make. Isn't that pretty? Wouldn't you like to have that at your birthday, girls? This is what they actually made. We, Brooke and I will fall off of our bed laughing at this show because when they unveil, oh, they're so proud and everyone's just, what in the world is that? That doesn't look the way it's supposed to look, does it? And then you have some, some other ones. You have this elephant in a chocolate hot tub. And then you have this, whatever that is. I... I, I don't know much about elephants in chocolate hot tubs, but I know which one of those looks better. If you show me both of them, I know which one is the copy. And then, I don't mean to be political, this is not meant to be political. Whatever you think of our president, uh, they made a cake of, of him. I don't know that that looks all that good, but I know that that doesn't. <laughs> I don't care how you feel about him, nobody deserves that. And so that, that's what comes to my mind when I, when I think about this new temple and I, and, and I think about these people walking by and it's like watching an episode of Nailed It. What is that? It's not supposed to look like that. It's supposed to be way better than that. Many of the priests and Levites, this is Ezra's account, when they had built the foundation, 
Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. I'd encourage you to read that account. They're actually having a worship service. They're singing to God, they're praising God because they, they've got the foundation of the temple built and they, there's old people crying so loud that they can't distinguish between the praise and the weeping. That's how upset they are. They hadn't even got past the foundation. I would say this is a pretty unsupportive group of people, wouldn't you? And that might have been another reason why they stopped working on it in the first place, right? I would imagine it's pretty hard to build something important and, and, and to praise God while you're doing it, only to have a bunch of people start crying really loud while you're trying to do it and complaining about it the whole time. This is just not good enough. If we could just go back to the good old days. Let me just throw this out there. I believe this is disrespectful. I think this is disrespectful behavior. Not only to the people who are building the temple, but I believe it's disrespectful to God. Because let me suggest something to you. God didn't tell them to build Solomon's temple. God knows they don't have all of that wealth. God, God never instructed them specifically, you make sure everything's covered in gold again this time. He knew they didn't have all of that. Just build my house. Build it back. It's understandable from a human point of view, but it's disrespectful. And it's counterproductive to God's true intentions. And Haggai addresses this by giving another word from the Lord, and this time it's, it's pretty encouraging. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, it's not just about the temple. This is my house. It represents my presence among you. I'm the same God, covered in gold or not. I'm still with you. I haven't been defeated. I haven't been taken into captivity. I remain with you in the same way that I always have. Fear not. God doesn't want His people to focus so much on the external appearance of things that they forget the meaning and purpose behind those things. So that's basically the message of Haggai. Simple, isn't it? Build my house. Have a better attitude. 
about building my house. Let's do an examination. And maybe you can make some application, maybe you can't. But let's do an examination on what this could mean for us. I want to examine uh, a couple of mindsets that I see in these people that, that sometimes, unfortunately, I see in myself. And maybe you'll see in yourself. Mindset number one, it's just not time. A.K.A. neglecting the temple. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when my circumstances scared me into believing that I needed to focus all of my time and my energy and my resources into myself. My family. My children. My job. My situation. And worse than that, worse than making that decision, I convinced myself during those times that it was okay and perhaps even wise to set God, the church, evangelism, service, Christian fellowship, and my own personal relationship with God aside until I can get a handle on these other compartments of life. Have you ever been there? Life happens in, in such an extreme way, it's not theoretical anymore. It's happened to you. It's shaken you up and all of a sudden you're sh shuffling things around and, and when you're done shuffling, God is nowhere on the table because there's just too many urgent things that need to be taken care of. That's a human tendency, isn't it? And let me tell you something, you might be there right now. And let me say this to the people who aren't in this building, you might be there right now too. First of all, let's see, let's see there are a few problems with this mindset, okay, if you'll allow me. First of all, this is a pretty simple way to approach life if you're going to claim to be a follower of Christ, isn't it? Let's just call it what it is. It's pretty sinful to say, God, I'm going to push you out for a while while I take care of my situation. We're not allowed to do that, are we? It's counter to everything that the Bible tells us. It's counter to everything that Jesus said we would have to do if we wanted to follow Him. He said you need to be prepared to deny yourself. Not focus on yourself. Deny yourself. Well, that's the opposite of that when we push God out of our lives. When we push Him out, we're not living in obedient fellowship with Him, and we're not going to be able to do any productive things for Him. John 15, 4 and 5, apart from me, Jesus said, you can do what? You won't do anything worthwhile. You won't do anything productive for me. Would you leave me out of your life? John wrote, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 2 John 1, 9. We were built and made to rely on God in every conceivable circumstance that we might find ourselves in. Our circumstances, no matter how bad they might get, are meant to drive us to God, not away from Him. In everything, by prayer and supplication, right? Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. In every circumstance, go to God, not away from God. So it's really a sinful thing to try to do, to, to neglect our, our spiritual life or to neglect the church or to neglect the purposes that God has given us. But secondly, let me just say this, and maybe you would say amen to this. We never really get a handle on life, do we? 
Have you noticed that? God, I'm going to put you aside. I've got to get a handle on some things. Does that work? It certainly hadn't worked for these people. Because God loved them enough to say, listen, if you think you're going to be able to fix this, let me show you that you won't. If I have to take stuff away from you to, to show you that you can't fix your own problems, then I'll do it. I'll blew all that stuff away. I'll do it again. We, we, we're not going to be able to, to do this. This pursuit that we find ourselves in to, to break even, to recapture some kind of lifestyle we think we deserve, to get our heads above water, so to speak, it tends to become a vicious cycle. And here's how it usually works. We leave God out, and in our minds it's going to be temporary, right? We never, do, we never intend to push Him out completely forever. God, I'll get back to you. We do that, and then we start really focusing on what we need to get done, and inevitably, all of those blessings somehow run right through our fingers, don't they? Well, that didn't work. Well, I'm just going to have to work harder. I'm just going to have to be more focused. I'm just not going to be able to go to church at all until I get this fixed. In short, we don't put first things first. When God said in Matthew 6, if you seek first the kingdom of heaven and the things that, that I want you to do, then I'll take care of all this stuff. You're not going to go hungry. You're not going to go unclothed. You're not going to go untaken care of. But sometimes we don't believe that. And so sometimes what we thought would take six months to take care of turns into six years. And sometimes we look around and we've tried to raise our own kids without God being involved at all. And how sad that is. We had so much to take care of. The things that we were hoping to catch up on were now caught up in. Like the thorny soil, we are sometimes choked by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. The very things we thought would bring us peace and security have literally strangled us spiritually. That's what the word choke means. Strangled completely. It means drowned. It means crowded. And I don't know about you, but I have felt that choke lately. Have you? I have felt life trying to choke God out. I've heard the whisperings of, of the enemy, you, you better double down to take care of your family. You better start trying to make some more money. You better take care of this, 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 and this. And all of it probably drawing me away from God in some way. And it's kind of tempting sometimes, isn't it? When things are uncertain, when, when you don't necessarily know what's going to happen next, it's tempting to say, God, I'll, I'll get back to you when things are back to normal. The problem is, number one, that's sinful. Number two, that, that's probably not going to happen. Interestingly enough, and this is really the problem, we're usually incredibly attentive to our own needs during those times, aren't we? Even during the times when we don't have time for God. We manage to feed and clothe and house and entertain ourselves on a regular basis, don't we? we still got time for politics and social media and online shopping 
And I bet you no one in this audience, whether in the building or online, has gone without food over the past five months. Why? Because like the post-exilic Jews, we have a tendency to panel our houses. No matter what. The house is going to get paneled. Especially in this country. And that's not a slight against this country. We're just rich. And we like paneled houses. No matter what's going undone or unfinished within the Lord's house, whether that might be us personally or the church collectively, the paneling somehow finds a way to continue. Sometimes to the point that our own houses become so luxurious that we become reluctant to re-enter a situation that might be uncomfortable or that might require us to to work with others in a a difficult or selfless way. It's just easier to say, eh, it's just not time. I'm just going to continue to to let the years go by and to just neglect the temple for now. It's just not time yet. This pandemic is certainly testing us. And let me be clear, there's not going to be any judgment from me tonight when it comes to how you choose to respond to the pandemic on an individual personal level. I I don't judge that. It's not my place. Whether socially or politically or educationally or medically, I I don't judge any of that. Because I'm not sure anyone actually knows anything about it. What about you? I'm not sure anyone knows anything. So I wouldn't judge that at all. But as God's people, I, I really think we all need to consider our ways. That's all I'm saying. Just like Haggai said, let's just consider our ways for a minute. Are we letting fear or selfishness or pride or at this point just sheer habit keep us away from spiritual things? While at the same time participating to the fullest degree allowable in things that have no spiritual benefit. House paneling, if you will. It's possible that during these very trying times, we might have fallen prey to this mindset. It's just not time yet. It's not time to get back to work for God. It's just too dangerous. That's that's not exactly the truth, is it? It's not exactly the way we should frame that. For all of us here and watching at home, without any judgment whatsoever, let me ask an honest question. Have you allowed, have I allowed, the circumstances of the last five months to cause you to shift your priorities? It's a simple question, but it's a difficult question, isn't it? We're all human beings. We're all here tonight, so we love the Lord, but but how would you answer that question? Has, Has it changed your life, have you found that your spiritual appetite has diminished or has it increased? Maybe to the point you're no longer cultivating your own relationship with God. Well, all this other stuff has shut down. I can't do this. I can't do that. I just won't do anything. Wouldn't that be sad? If we neglected the temple? And at the same time, we're probably still mowing our lawn, paying our bills and Watching our TV shows, there's no denying that this virus has presented a very unique opportunity for Satan. 
Many of God's people have probably allowed it to become a foothold for him. But this virus, unlike God, is not all-powerful, is it? It's not. It has no power over us. Did you hear that? It doesn't have any power over you. Spiritually speaking, it can do nothing to you. So let me ask a few questions. Are you still praying every day? Nothing can stop you from doing that. Nobody can stop you from doing that. Are you studying your Bible regularly? Nothing can stop you from that. There's no mandate. There's no law against that. And even if there were, you could still do it. Are you strengthening your own family? Are you reaching out to other people in ways that, that are allowed? Phone calls, texts, cards, and letters. Or have you adopted the mantra, well, it's just not time yet. We're just going to take a break from our spiritual life because, you know, everything's shut down. You know, God won't care. We'll just shut this down too. Well, that's dangerous. I would say to you, it's always time to turn your whole heart to the Lord. To use all your available resources to strengthen His house, both personally and collectively. And we may have to get creative, but it's time. It's always time. Let's talk about mindset number two. It's just not the same. It's just not the same. Solomon once wrote, Say not. Don't, don't say this. Why were the former days better than these? Solomon said, don't say that. Don't sit around and talk about how good it used to be. Why, Solomon? Because it's not from wisdom that you ask this question. Ecclesiastes 7.10 I have to tell you, after driving nearly four hours to be with you today, it's not the same, is it? It's not the same. There, there's a whole bunch of people that aren't here that we would love to see. There might be some people here tonight that we would love to hug that don't feel safe hugging us. That's not the same. We, we can't let our kids do what we might let them do after church. It's not the same. It's truly sad isn't it? Our first time in, uh, back to in-person worship in Montgomery at the Dalrada Church of Christ, the first time we went back after three and a half months of worshiping from our couch was depressing. I'm just going to be honest with you. It was depressing. We were, we were frustrated and, and we realized we are about to face an entirely new category of temptation. Because this isn't just about, we had just thought, this is just about getting back into that building. No, 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 no. That's not what it's about. It's a battle, as it always has been, for our soul. It's just not the same. It's just not the same. We get so frustrated. Because experientially speaking, it's kind of like those nailed-it cakes. There's really no comparison, is there? There's really no comparison to the first temple and the second temple. There's really no comparison to those two Donald Trump cakes. There's really no comparison to the way things used to be here at Buford and the way they are right now, is there? Really no comparison. But here's the thing. Don't disrespect the temple. I, I want you to hear the voice of God tonight. God is saying, it doesn't matter how many people are here. I'm here. 
Be strong. Don't be afraid. I am in your midst. What did Jesus say? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Matthew 18, verse 20. We've got to be very careful, Christians, not to diminish the awesome presence of God because there are a few more empty pews. And that's dangerous, and that's easy to do, isn't it? We've got to be careful and resist the thinking that our fellowship in Christ is somehow lessened because we can't see the bottom half of our favorite person's face. We've got to guard against discounting the power of assembling with the saints simply because some of our favorite people are still worshiping from home. We must never limit the power and capability of Almighty God to do impossible and wonderful things, no matter how limited and helpless and frustrated and powerless we as His people might feel. God told Haggai, or told His people through Haggai, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. Hang with me, I'm almost done, but listen to this. It is true that this could be a reference to the physical temple and something that was going to happen in a physical way to that temple in the future. It's true that he could have been referring to that. But it's also entirely possible, and I believe likely, that this is a prophecy about something else entirely. That when Haggai says the latter glory of this house where God dwells is going to be far greater than its former glory, that he was talking about something that Jesus was coming to build. The marvelous, unsurpassing, glorious beauty of the Lord's church of which you and I, no matter who else is here, are blessed to be part of tonight. We live in a house, if you will, both personally and collectively, that is built by God. It'll never be repossessed. It can't be invaded. It can't be burned down. No one can take it from you. It provides safety, security, and eternal fellowship with its builder. To put it bluntly, we live in a house that deserves and demands our attention. No matter what's going on in this world, in this country, or our own lives, let us renew our commitment to Christ and His church tonight. In the coming months, let's recommit to rebuild His temple instead of abandoning it for our own pursuits. In the mid-1800s, a German artist named Adolf Menzel started this painting. It was intended to show a group of generals gathered around a Prussian king named Frederick the Great. The painting is considered by some a masterpiece, beautiful, showing a number of fully rendered generals and a beautiful snowy landscape. The problem with the painting is that the king is missing. As it turns out, the artist died before he had an opportunity 
to put the king in his proper place. Can I encourage all of us to not let that happen in our own lives? Don't spend your life painting a beautiful picture that you fully intend to put God in someday when He belongs at the center. He should have been the first one involved. I love you and God loves you and I pray that the words of Haggai, these ancient words, will become as living and active in your life, even if it's painful, as they need to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are so good. We know as we bow before Your throne tonight that You are listening. That You look on with with love and concern as we face difficulties in this life right now. That those who are listening from home, many who are hurting very badly, many who are sad and lonely and, and maybe dealing with things that are beyond our help, we know that You care. Lord, we often neglect your temple in favor of paneling our own houses. We often disrespect your temple by comparing it to earlier versions or our own preferences. Help us, Lord, to realize who we serve. Come back to an honest and genuine and simple and pure faith that gets stronger when tested, that gets more and more genuine as the days get harder and harder. We pray for forgiveness if we've not trusted you in the way that we should. From this point forward, give us strength and hope and a renewed dedication to rebuild your house. In Jesus' name, amen.